DPP presidential candidate Lai Qingde held his fifth policy presentation on Friday, focusing on cultural policy. He pledged to earmark generous funding for cultural development and to mandate an annual budget increase. He also vowed to promote an interdisciplinary approach to cultural development and to protect cultural rights through a dedicated law. This is what he said. Instead of talking numbers, let's talk about what we'll do. There are things that must get done, money that must be spent. When that's the case, we'll earmark the budget. That's probably the most prudent approach. When Lai served as Premier, he gave his full support to cultural governance. I will forever be so grateful to him for that. During his tenure, he set aside more than 1% of the central government's total budget to the Ministry of Culture. We also submitted a dedicated cultural affairs law. Cultural policy is quite important. So far, only Lies Camp has proposed a culture policy. I've heard nothing about the two other candidates' thoughts on culture. Presidential candidate Lai's cultural policy gives me great hope about the future of the TV and film industry. Lai's platform on culture has earned endorsements from several notable artists. So far, directors Gil Ziang and Yang Li Zhou and Taiwanese opera star Tang Meiyun have expressed strong support for his cultural vision. Turning now to the opposition, the KMT and Taiwan People's Party, or the TPP, will meet on Saturday to discuss a potential partnership in the presidential election. Ahead of the much-anticipated meeting, the TPP has stressed the need to use debates and polls to decide the presidential candidate. Meanwhile, the KMT camp says it will discuss anything the other side brings to the table without setting preconditions. If the alliance proves successful, it could pose a challenge to the presidential frontrunner, the ruling party's Lai Qingde. But DPP lawmaker Zhang Reishong doubts the two sides can reach a deal. With an exchange of business cards, KMT and TPP staffers get acquainted ahead of a political parley on Saturday. Media press them for the details of Saturday's agenda. It depends on what ideas both sides bring to the table. I believe that we can talk about anything without preconditions. My hope is that we'll be able to reach some concrete results with these talks. Both sides need to realize that this is not a zero-sum game. In this meeting, it's very important that everyone is calm and open. Commenting on the potential alliance between his rivals, DPP presidential candidate Lai Qingde said it was more important that he stay focused on his campaign. We are not in a position to comment on the activities of the opposition parties, but every election is the same. The biggest key to winning or losing lies in one's own abilities. From the beginning, our strategy has been to adopt the most rigorous approach with tough situations, tackling them head-on, no matter the number of groups or candidates. In this election battle, we have always proceeded with great care. But are the TPP and KMT capable of an alliance? The lawmaker is skeptical. The TPP thinks, I don't want to work with you because you rank third in the polls. If the KMT and TPP were to collaborate, the TPP might end up feeling a little aggrieved. The ruling DPP is watching detachedly from the sidelines. 
With the alliance talks about to unfold, the challenges are just beginning. Kurz made it clear he wants to use policy debates and opinion polls to select the presidential candidate. It's unclear if the KMT can accept these terms. Five years ago, Taiwan and Paraguay announced their plan to establish Latin America's premier university, the Taiwan-Paraguay Polytechnic University. But to this day, construction has yet to begin on university's campus. The delay has raised questions from opposition lawmakers who claim that Taiwan gave money to Paraguay for campus construction. Taiwan's foreign ministry has flatly denied the allegation. It says Taiwan gave nothing to Paraguay except support with curriculum design and faculty deployment. During President Tsai Ing-wen's 2018 visit to Paraguay, she and then-President Horacio Cartes unveiled a commemorative plaque for the Taiwan-Paraguay Polytechnic University. They pledged to establish the premier university in Latin America. But five years after the project's announcement, construction has yet to begin on the brick-and-mortar campus. It's raised concerns from opposition lawmakers. From January 2019 to January 13, 2022, all the budgets were prepaid. These were funds supporting the Paraguayan government's request for assistance with campus planning and related expenses. That's very clear. In total, 336.115 million NT were allocated. How exactly has this money been used? In a statement on Thursday, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs clarified that Paraguay was responsible for the construction of the university. It said Taiwan was responsible for curriculum design and faculty dispatch, which were being handled by the National Taiwan University of Science and Technology. No funds were given to Paraguay, it said, accusing critics of slandering the ministry and attacking a Taiwanese ally. But the statement failed to appease the opposition. We at the Legislative Yuan wanted you to explain the budget. Is that slandering you? Is that attacking one of our allies? Why is the Foreign Ministry so defensive? Foreign Minister Joseph Wu, please come out and give us an explanation. White buildings are surrounded by palm trees in this grand 3D rendering. But the school's actual construction has yet to begin. The Foreign Ministry says it and Paraguay are negotiating a second five-year plan and Paraguay has listed the university's construction as a priority. The entire process is transparent, the Ministry says, urging people not to make baseless allegations. As Indonesia celebrates the launch of its first high-speed railway, the government is dealing with cost overruns and Chinese bank loans with high interest rates. The total cost for the project, estimated at 7.5 billion US dollars, has far exceeded the initial figure of 5.5 billion. In Jakarta, Voice of America's Devianti Faris has the story. Indonesian President Joko Widodo launched Southeast Asia's first high-speed railway, branded as Woosh, on October 2 in Jakarta. The railway is a joint venture between an Indonesian consortium of four state-owned companies and a Chinese consortium of six state-owned companies, including China Railway International Corporation. This high-speed railway marks the modernizations of our mass transportation, which is more efficient, environmentally friendly, and integrated with other modes of transport. 
The bullet train serves the popular route between the Indonesian capital Jakarta and Bandung, West Java. Traveling at top speeds of 350 kilometers per hour, it stops just outside Bandung, cutting the usual three-hour rail journey to 45 minutes. To be honest, this train is so fast. While it may not take you to Bandung itself, it reaches Padalarang on the outskirts. The project was projected to cost 5.5 billion US dollars and open in 2019. But costs mounted to 7.3 billion US dollars, says Luhut Panjaitan, Indonesia's Minister of Maritime Affairs and Investment. We face numerous problems and hurdles from land acquisition, lacks of coordination and financial problem due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Indonesia agreed to seek additional loans of 550 million US dollars from the China Development Bank, but at higher interest rates. Indonesia is now seeking to negotiate with China Development Bank to bring down the interest rates. China requested the government provide loan guarantees directly from the state budget. Even worse, China did not request this at the beginning, but now they have demanded. What do you call it if not China's debt trap? To make high-speed rail economically viable in the long run, Indonesia plans to extend the railway to Surabaya on the opposite end of the island of Java and has started its feasibility study. Devianti Farid's VOA News, Jakarta. After 52 years of smoking, former Health Minister Chen Shizhong has been put free for nearly 500 days. On Friday, the Health Promotion Administration asked him to share his secret to quitting. Chen didn't hold back, saying that he constantly fights the urge to light up, but he just tells himself, maybe tomorrow, but not today. When I first quit, I woke up every morning from dreams about smoking. I would be so happy and I'd want to light one up, but then I couldn't. I would tell myself, today I'm still quitting. If it becomes truly unbearable, there will be a chance to smoke tomorrow. Every small victory helped to strengthen my campaign to quit. The Director General of the Health Promotion Administration helped me often by inviting me to television interviews so that everybody would know that I'd quit smoking. So to this day, the entire nation is monitoring me. If you also want to kiss tobacco goodbye, there is a wealth of resources offered by the Health Promotion Administration. Smokers can get free coaching at their local hospital, district health office, or participate in clinics, dentists, and pharmacies. In fact, there are some 3,500 contracted institutions nationwide. They can also call a toll-free hotline for customized advice. The three-day Taiwan InnoTech Expo is underway. The Economics Ministry, which invests billions in R&D each year, is showcasing 82 tech innovations. There's a next-generation hydrogen fuel cell that allows drones to achieve record-topping flight times. There's also a wearable device that enables precise real-time monitoring of an athlete's performance. 
Sporting a special vest, he grabs a dumbbell and starts to lift, sending data on muscle reactions flashing on the screen. It turns out that the vest has carbon nanotube-based sensors that capture the physiological conditions of athletes in real time. Today's sports competitions aren't just about sporting ability. They are also a competition in technological capabilities. This detection technology that we developed has already obtained approval from the global governing body of soccer. It can already be used to monitor athletes' physiological responses during games. With the touch of a joystick, a two-metre-tall drone takes off, launching into a rescue mission. It's equipped with an advanced hydrogen fuel cell, a lightweight, high-performance technology that meets the intense power demands of drone propellers during takeoff. Traditionally, this power consumption has meant that drones can't fly too far. But with this fuel cell, drones with a payload of 5 kilograms can fly continuously for 181 minutes, a global record. In this documentary of a mountain rescue, the drone is seen airdropping food, clothing and medicine, buying more precious time for search and rescue teams to reach stranded people. Whether the drones are used for rescue operations or supply missions, they need to carry significant weight. If you use traditional lithium batteries, you'd have a hard time getting more than an hour of continuous flight time. But when a drone is equipped with this hydrogen fuel cell technology, it can reach 181 minutes of continuous flight time. The economics ministry invests billions in tech research and development each year. At the ongoing Taiwan Inatech Expo, it's showcasing 82 innovations. It's also handed out the Tree Award to six startup teams in recognition of their business potential. The ministry hopes to partner with these teams in the future to tap new market opportunities in fields like smart textiles, sports technology and drones. The 2023 National Games will open next week in Tainan, but some events have already kicked off in advance. Among them is the Men's Roller Speed Skating 1,000-meter Sprint event, which held its finals on Friday. Taiwan Speed Skating star Huang Yuling won silver. In an ironic twist, Huang missed out on gold by celebrating too early at the finish line. It was a mistake his South Korean opponent made just last week at the Hangzhou Asian Games a mistake that had given Huang the gold in a stunning upset. But in Friday's final, the tables turned. Huang raised both hands in jubilation as speed skater Zhao Zuzhen stretched his leg out and crossed the finish line first, winning by just 0.03 seconds. A new second-hand toy center in rural Hualien aims to benefit local families and cut environmental damage. The shop is staffed by students from National Donghua University who repair damaged toys, bringing them back to good-as-new condition. For some families in remote areas of Hualien, toys are a luxury that's not accessible. So even second-hand toys are very exciting for kids. The initiative is part of the work of the Taiwan Toy Library Association. A student twists a screwdriver to open up a plastic toy. He inspects it and then puts it back together good as new. The team here, hard at work fixing broken toys, has been christened the Toy Doctors. Of course, as we collect toys, there are some that are damaged, so we ask Donghua students to make initial repairs. If that's not possible, then we disassemble the parts to recycle them. 
These students are at Donghua University, located in Shoufeng Township in Hualien. Together with the Taiwan Toy Library Association, they've established the Hualien Donghua Toy Garden Logistics Center. Here, toys are collected, distributed, sorted, cleaned, and inspected before being given to social welfare organizations. We apply for a toy at the Toy Garden Logistics Center, and they send them to Donghua University. When they arrive, then we ask students to sort them out together. You can see the link to apply for the center here on the website of Taiwan Toy Library Association. Children play with educational toys covering this table. In the cupboard is a box of pre-sorted toys which have all been brought back to life by the students' skillful hands. Their work protects the environment from unnecessary waste and brings joy to children in remote communities. If we can maintain this for the next person, then we make better use of it. There may be some children in Ji'an Township whose families have very few toys. Furthermore, they may have financial problems, so they're really lacking toys like this. Goods like this can be lacking in rural areas, and even toys may be a luxury for families in poverty. That's why this center is not just a win for environmental concerns. It's also a big resource for children, an idea that fills these student engineers with motivation. A cafe in the mountains of Miaoli is a mecca for lovers of dorayaki or Japanese red bean pancakes. The dorayaki served there have a distinctive leopard cat logo which reflects the presence of the protected species in the area. But the couple who created the treat didn't realize the cats were so nearby until after they adopted the logo. Batter is poured onto neat circles. They're grilled for a few minutes, flipped, and then a perfect dorayaki with a brown skin emerges. We use local ingredients, and also we try our best to select eco-friendly sources for our ingredients. Once the dorayaki are grilled, it's time for a little decoration. An adorable leopard cat stamp is gently pressed on each dorayaki. The miraculous thing is that soon after the bakery owner decided to adopt the stamp, a real leopard cat appeared outside his home. We put a camera out there and it caught traces of a leopard cat. It's a protected species in Miaoli. We really support the idea of animal protection. These delicious treats are not just carefully decorated. Their filling is a perfect smidgen of azuki bean. This small wooden cafe nestled in Miaoli's Tongluo Township is a place where locals retreat for a serene cup of coffee and a dorayaki. I can relax here because it's close to nature. The dorayaki smell wonderful, so I rush to jump on the bandwagon and come here. The irresistible aroma of dorayaki enfolds this wooden cafe in the mountains. This couple opened it after retirement, following a long-held dream, and giving hikers and travelers a tranquil spot to rest and relax.